Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello and a very big welcome to you, um, to Strange Religion, brought to you um, by Rough Trade Books on Soho Radio. This is a show where every so often we think about all the strange little religions we have to give our life some meaning, to impose some pattern and significance on maybe a vast nothing or maybe not. We've looked at work, we've looked at the the rituals of skin, we've looked at borders, we've looked at how we make sense of life through stories. But today something special, because for the first time ever, we're actually considering religion, strange or otherwise. And we have got Matt Rowland Hill here to talk about his amazing memoir, Original Sins. We're here for about two hours, having a chat playing some music. This amazing memoir, published by Chadwell and Windus, has been getting just the most fantastic response. Kevin Parr and Literary Review thinks it's going to become classic. The Guardian thought it was brilliant. The Observer said, painfully comic and thrillingly immediate. Basically, I could go on all day talking about the great things that um, people have said about Matt's writing, um, but just like to welcome him. Thanks. So great to meet you, Wendy. I'm a huge fan of your writing as well. <laughs> well, that's nice to hear because I'm a massive fan of uh, massive fan of yours. Oh. Um, before we before we begin looking at, at the book in, in some detail, Matt, for people that know nothing whatsoever about it, you know, or nothing whatsoever about you, what do you think are the sort of key things? I suppose you would say for them to for them to know. Yeah, I mean, the head gri- headline grabbing thing about the book is that. Um, after I'd gone through this very religious childhood, I became a heroin addict for 10 years. And um, the book becomes about trying to find a way forward without religion or God, I guess. Um, but for me, um, yeah, there's the two main aspects. There's the religion aspect, growing up the son of a fundamentalist preacher in South Wales. My dad was like a kind of Bible bashing believer. We thought the world was made in six days. We thought gay people were going to hell. We thought virtually everyone was going to hell. Even the Anglicans probably wouldn't even make it into heaven, you know. Um, But then when I was a teenager, I lost my faith and I... It was like my whole world had fallen apart and I went on a journey looking for meaning in all different kinds of places and they were all the wrong places. Um, Women or the or the fantasies that I projected onto them, drugs, literature, um, and I didn't really find it. But I think you know I made all the wrong mistakes, and the book's kind of a record of that. Let me talk to you a wee bit about the about the book, some aspects of it. Um, the prologue is amazing, Matt. Could you give people a, just a brief 
overview of what happens in that. Yeah, so the pro prologue's kind of a slap in the face, and um, uh, actually it doesn't quite go on like that for some time afterwards. So the book becomes more about growing up and you know dealing with a difficult family and that kind of thing. But with the prologue, I um, I remembered a time, and it was a really sad time in a way, um, a guy that I'd known at university, a guy that I'd once been close to, hadn't seen for some time, had died of a drug overdose, and I was invited to his funeral. And although nobody that I knew knew it, um, at the time I was, a, I was a heroin addict. I was addicted to heroin and crack. And I really wanted to be there. I really wanted to pay my respects to him. But the only way that I could do it was by showing up on heroin. There was just absolutely no other way. Um, I would have gone into withdrawal. It would have been terrible. So the, the book opens with me um, in a bathroom, staring into a mirror and looking at all the drugs that I've got for the day. And I say, you know, I felt like a great painter um, looking at a blank canvas and feeling inspired, which is how a drug addict feels when the drugs are all there and it feels like they'll never run out you know and obviously very quickly they they do and then disaster strikes so the beginning of the book takes place in a in a church with me taking drugs in a toilet and um, there's a person who's died who I guess in a way could very well have been me um, but it's also a homecoming because it takes place in Wales and I'm from Wales, but I'd moved away. So it felt like a way of bringing together all the different themes of the book. It also involves me shitting myself. So <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of sounds grim, but I think it's funny as well. It is very funny. It is grim and it's very funny. And I mean, as a, as a opening chapter to a book, it's absolutely stunning. Your book, I said this to you before one time, I think, that was sitting around my kitchen for, for, for quite a while and numerous people lifted it up and, and, and read that opening chapter and thought it was just absolutely, um, absolutely stunning. You know, it's interesting because Stop I'm... Stop it. Listeners can't see this, but I'm blushing right now. <laughs> well, it's interesting, you know, because I, I write short stories are my thing. And one of the sort of the wisdom that I'm constantly giving people about short short stories is that the, the first paragraph, particularly the first page, needn't be anything that's an absolute showstopper. It doesn't need to be any kind of reviewer writing whatsoever. Um, and sometimes you hear people saying, oh, yes, you know, if you don't have this knockout introduction, or if you don't have this knockout first paragraph or first page or whatever, your reader's not going to continue. And yet I think that loads of stories that I like are really, really pedestrian. You know, they're really on the down low. On the first, on the first paragraph, you have look at loads of Chekhov stories. I mean, they're really, really mm. um, very, very low key. Um but I'm always ready to be to have everything totally turned around for me too. Um, mm. And to me, this was just absolutely, absolutely stunning in terms of a first, a first chapter. Mm. Well, I mean, looking back now, I mean, in a way, the the book is split into I think it's nine different sections, and they're kind of a little bit like short stories that are linked together. And I wish I'd taken your advice before speaking to you because um, I'd never written a short story before, but um, yeah, I mean, I'd never written anything really before I wrote that. So 
I was probably trying really hard to get grab the reader's attention. Really, Matt, you'd never written anything really before. Well, I know you'd written journalism. You'd you'd done journalism. I'd done a few. You'd... I'd done a few kind of blog pieces, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I'd never tried to do anything creative or tell a story or anything like that. I'd, I'd written about six to ten pieces that I didn't even get paid for for um, websites of newspapers when I was a few years earlier. Yeah, a few years younger. Because that's one of the things that people, I think, have, have found about your writing, that it is just so engaging. And really, you could be writing about anything. It's just your your take your take on it, the way you describe things. It's so vivid and so precise and so funny. So have you always been, even as it's not been published, have you been writing yourself? No? No. Uh, when I was at university, um, I was at university that had this very kind of... Um, uh, well-known anthology where all the students every student who was interested in writing would submit their stuff there and I hung around with a group of kind of writers and would-be writers and artists and um, everyone submitted a story a friend submitted a, a poem uh, my girlfriend submitted a short story um, and out of the whole group of us, I was the only one who didn't get something into this anthology. And I was gutted. I was gutted. I felt like I couldn't show my face in the pub, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I convinced myself from that day. Uh, I, I mean, I had a lot of other stuff going on as well in my 20s. But um, I convinced myself from that day that I just wasn't a, a writer. Um, and I, I remember thinking to myself, well, it's OK not to be a writer. You know, the world needs readers. And I loved reading absolutely loved reading and even through all my years of drug addiction the one thing that drug addicts have is loads of time um because we've got nothing to do (laughs) apart from take drugs so um i would just sit around i think i read like everything you know i read the whole kind of canon of english literature pretty much don't test me on that i might have missed a few um and uh yeah, I think the education that I had and the creative writing course I had was just through reading so much. So when I came to sit down at the page and write my first book, I'd already had such a great education from reading. I mean, you can you can see that in this book. It's just it's a text full of other texts. I mean, it's just constantly referencing well, obviously the Bible, but just so other no so so many other texts too. Um, I had a story published one time, or not published, but I, I tried to have a story published one time long before anything I ever you know got out into the world, and it was a story about um, some girls murdering a paedophile. Um, and it was inspired by this Paul Arego painting. And I entered it for a competition in a magazine that was basically like a sort of a, a glossy Northern Ireland society mag. Mm. And it was obviously never going to win this this competition. Because it was too dark? Well, it was just so dark. And it was just dark and gory and just not what they just not what they would want whatsoever and I remember they had a prize giving and I, I didn't even and everybody who had submitted something was, was invited to the prize giving apart from me <laughs> um, because they probably thought that's a strange person I don't <laughs> want them coming along but it's funny how something like that can make you think yeah I'm no good at that, give that one a miss you know but, um, but did you carry on writing after that? Yeah, not for not for a couple of decades, basically. Um, but really? Yeah, yeah. 
wrote, I mean, I, I wrote little things for myself, you know, for my own amusement. I would have written things, I would have made things up and, you know, invented scenarios and so on. But anything formal, no, not for, not for a couple of decades. Because you kind of strike me, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, um, as the kind of writer who's just always producing stuff, right? I, I feel like you've got a million ideas and... If I'm not mistaken, you were working as a teacher while yeah, you wrote your right. books? Yeah, still am. Still am. Full-time still, okay. teacher. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so you must be writing around your work all the time in the mornings, in the evenings. Um, I feel like you you know, you know, just keep going forever and just come up with a thousand different ideas. Uh, whereas I still, to be completely honest... Um, I, I feel like maybe I'm not a writer, you know, I feel like I've just written a book and maybe I'll do something else now. Do you? you feel like? Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd like to write another book, but I, I'm not, I've never felt like writing was my identity or my thing. I never felt like, you know, I don't, to be honest, I don't sit around all day and have like eight ideas for a short story, which I kind of imagine that you do. Is that right? Yeah, I do. Tell me yeah. what it's like to be a writer, Wendy. I'm not. I never say I'm a writer. Like I would never. This is so interesting. I would never announce myself to somebody as writer. You know, I'd always be saying I'm a I'm a teacher. That would be my my first thing. Um, I've no problem generating the ideas. I could I could come up with ten by yeah, the see, end of the day. See, you know? I couldn't. And I would I would really enjoy that. This is why I, I had to make nothing up. I just had to t- <laughs> say what actually happened because I got no ideas. But sometimes you execute. That's what I can't do. And whenever I was reading it, I was thinking that whenever I was reading your book, I was thinking, here's somebody who's a who's a real writer who can can put things across so incredibly vividly and with such a, a style. It's not like meretricious. You know the way sometimes you use the word style and it, and it means something that's really kind of flashy. I don't mean that at all. It means style over substance. It does, absolutely. Yeah. And I never felt like that at all with this, that it was so so stylish and so beautifully done and so funny. Um, and it just seemed to come so naturally. I mean, I just didn't imagine, Matt, maybe I'm wrong, I just didn't imagine that you were editing this over and over and over and over well, again. Well, you're completely um, wrong about that. Really? Yeah, really? so wrong. Oh, that yeah, makes me I feel mean, good. I mean, that makes me feel good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, a few a few people have said that it felt like it came naturally, and I've had to sadly correct them. Uh, I worked <laughs> so hard, you know. I mean, you should have seen the first draft. Really? It's absolutely disastrous, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it took me three years, although I was doing a few other things as well. And um, uh, the amount of time that I spent on 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 getting it to where it is um, was insane. If I'd known at the beginning what it would take, I, I would never have started. Seriously. Let's move on to um, the first chapter, first chapter proper, which is this brilliant car journey. You and your family. And people are in this car arguing. It's all fraught. People are kind of weaponizing scripture. I'm thinking that maybe the song you're wanting to play is Cindy Lauper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, um, that's one of the most vivid memories of my childhood. My parents, you know, to be fair, I don't think they're Soho radio listeners, so I can say this. You know, they kind of fucking hated each other, really. They just hated each other. And from morning till night, they would they would argue. And um, 
in a way, in a way, this journey was totally mundane. It was not that different from others. Um, but I think the thing about a long car journey, and uh, probably a lot of listeners will will relate to this. You know, um, uh, everything is in that car. You know, you're if you're there with your family, particularly if you're going away on holiday, you're there for seven hours. The whole family's there. All the dynamics are right there in the car. It's kind of a great um, place to set a story in a way. Um, there's no escape, you know. So, um, and I think all of us have memories of those long car journeys when we were kids, and and they're vivid. You yeah. Know? So actually, when I was writing the book, um, you know, part uh, some parts of it I remember so vividly, and some parts of it I remember a bit, and I had to try and fill in the rest with imagination. You know, I mean, I can't remember the exact words or what everyone was wearing. But that's a scene where I feel like I remember every single detail um, just because it was such a kind of horrible scene in my childhood. Childhood, Although I think, you know, I hope I tried to make it a bit funny um, as I wrote it. Um, and we had this terrible argument and it was triggered by uh, my dad turning on the radio and Cindy Lauper's song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, came on. And you know, it was like the late 80s, so that song had been getting like heavy airplay for a few years. And I loved the song, and my mum absolutely hated it because the, the one thing that my mum absolutely despised was fun. She thought it embodied everything that was evil and wrong. So uh, this song kicked off such a terrible argument. It was one of the worst traumas of my life, and it's such a banger, I still love it. talk about Matt in this chapter is the whole idea of being the minister's son and the sort of special category status that has mm. you know the sort of elect among the elect as mm -hmm. you as you put it and I mean I came where I, I'm from I'm from Northern Ireland um, and it's a fairly religious place mm -hmm. as you know and I can always remember thinking about the people whose parents, whose dads, because it was dads, um, were ministers, how they were almost like celebrities. You know, everybody mm. was really interested to see what the minister's son mm. or the minister's daughter was mm. going to do at the disco. Um, so they were people that were set apart and were also as well subjected to more scrutiny, I suppose you would say, um, yeah. than, than others. And I remember as well, I had a friend um, who was married to a minister. And sometimes if she made a comment, people would say, oh, I didn't think a minister's wife would say that. <laughs> and so, you know, sort of laid on top of, of, of her kind of personality and her, her being was this sort of um, other you know, role that she had to that she had to kind of maintain. People were shocked sometimes if she came up with a comment that wasn't typical of the of the minister's wife as they as mm. they perceived it. Mm. So what was that? What was that like? Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about your childhood is that you've only ever known that reality, right? Yeah. So um, in one way, it was completely normal. But um, yeah, if you've never grown up in a church, then it's probably hard to imagine. You know, you've got this whole community there. You know, it's 300, 400, 500 people. It's, it's, a, it's like a village. And it's all centered around the minister. And that was my dad. Um, so yeah, it came with scrutiny and it came with certain 
um, kind of kind of privileges in a way. I mean, uh, I know my sister Rachel. She felt the scrutiny much more strongly than she felt the 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 positive aspects of it. Personally, I just found it was a great way of getting girls. It was just like all the girls in the youth group, they just all, for some reason, you know, I didn't have any other special attributes at all, believe me, but but they, um, because I was the minister's son, um, they they were more interested in me than they otherwise would have been. Um, and, you know, thank, thank God for that. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was difficult as well because when as i grew older i um i began to have doubts and eventually i lost my faith it wasn't just that i i would um i knew that i would upset my parents it was like i would shame my parents in front of the community because word would get out that i wasn't coming to church anymore and um that was a terrible pressure in a way so that was kind of difficult mm. You mean I can remember that about one of one of the ministers that 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 I would have known that you know one of his sons people said oh he's he's decided he doesn't believe in God anymore and it was absolute you know that was a it was a sensation you know mm. um, people it was a whole the whole talk absolutely mm. I ended up writing a story and this is one that's published by Rough Trade um, and it was it was it was about a it's called Bright Gehenna and it's about a it's about a it's about a guy called a boy called um, Jamie Devine, and his father is a pastor. But they also have to make it even more complicated. They're also a singing group, so um, they're country gospel. The, the, the so dads the in dad, the singing group. The dad, the mum, and the son <laughs> are in a in a country gospel okay. group. So they have not just a profile in their church; they also have a profile as well across Northern Ireland, and then. At some point, Jimmy Devine decides that he's he's not into it. He doesn't um, have any faith. The, the singing or the religion? Both, both. right? Okay. So it's it's excruciatingly embarrassing. And that's the, that's the thing as well, that your faith in your parents and your faith in God kind of goes together in a way because your parents are like gods to you. And yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah, that's absolutely the way of it. And he, yeah, he, so he, he rejects being in the group. But he also as well um, embraces what his father dislikes, which is um, satanic metal. Mm, and mm. so I make up this group, Bright Gehenna. I was really, it was really difficult to get the name of a group that didn't already exist because all the Norwegians had basically taken everything from the Old Testament right, right, um, right. For, all of their, for all of their their death metal, or satanic metal. But I came up with this idea, Bright Gehenna. And Pastor Divine is having a protest outside the city hall against Bright Gehenna and all the time his son is wishing that he was that he was inside and mm -hmm. that he was in rather than the congregation in the audience for the for the concert and it ends up that he just wants to destroy everything at the end and I suppose what I'm looking that sounds really simplistic talking about it now but the idea that, that the sort of impulse to destroy is as big as as great as the impulse to create and mm. you know the country gospel even though you wouldn't say it's terribly it's not it's not high art but it's creation in the way that um Jamie's urge to destroy is the exact opposite mm. so that was my take on the whole minister's son 
before I thought this I met was leading you. into a reading. Are you not oh, I can read? read a bit if you want to why, hear why don't a you bit. Read a little I'll bit read of... a little bit. I'll read. I'll read a little bit. The local papers ran stories on the spread of satanic practices, and churches warned young people not to get involved. Satan, despite what some might say, was very real. One of the boys in Jamie's class said that at the church his auntie went to, they hired a cement mixer and asked all of the young people who liked heavy metal music to turn away from it. They were told to bring all of their records and badges to waste ground at the back of the church hall. The minister read some Bible verses and they threw all of their stuff into a hole someone had dug and then the cement was tipped on top of it. But the cement didn't set for ages. It was really weird. It was as though the devil wouldn't let the cement set. It was pure freaky. <laughs> There's still street preachers and singers in Belfast, as there were, were then. Better to appear before a congregation who gave undivided attention, not shoppers passing through laden with poly bags. The Lord's Word required concentration, and it was sad to see tracts handed out in the street trampled underfoot. And so therefore it would have taken an exceptional circumstance for the pastor to take to the streets, but the Bright Gehenna concert proved to be exactly that. <laughs> there were people who felt compelled to make a stand against everything that this group represented. Bright Gehenna, the biblical reference to the destination of the wicked, Gehenna, the lake of fire, was not lost on the pastor. Jimmy heard him ask Ernie McCormick if he had heard about Bright Gehenna when they were driving along one evening to a performance at a faith mission. He had. Well, said the pastor, it's all very worrying. Don't think I've ever heard the like. And they're performing in the Ulster Hall. Ernie McCormick sighed. It's not satanic, Ronnie. It's just showbiz. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Just the way it is. Showbiz. The pastor said nothing. On the evening of the protest, everyone was invited to gather outside the venue from 7.30 onwards. The pastor stopped on the way to pick up some others whose placard bearing a Bible verse needed to be put into the boot. Two women bundled into the back and the one beside Jamie was his old Sunday school teacher. Even through her thick, decent coat, he could feel her excitement. And quite fearful of what I might see, mm. the other woman said. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Love it. Um, well, there's a real writer for you. Um, well, yeah. that's very kind of you. <laughs> um, but that that's kind of you in your kind of more comic, satirical mode. Is that right? You, did you feel like you were being more playful when you wrote that? Yes. That's me being more comic. That's me being more playful. That's probably not my favourite type of story that I do because there's a kind of a distance there mm. um, between me and those mm. and those characters. And where's that being published? So that was pu that was published by Rough Trade. Rough Trade did a series of pamphlets that were published in association with the Museum of Witchcraft. And it's called and Magic, Satan is Real. And it's called Satan is Real. Amazing. So my mum would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny, actually, what you said about um, how the cement hadn't set as though Satan himself had stopped the cement from setting. Um, you know, Satan was a very, very present um, personality in our household. Um, everything, you know, the most trivial things were attributed to the work of God or Satan. Um, there's a bit in my book when we're... Um, and this was so normal, you know, we're, we're praying about getting to this family holiday that you mentioned, uh, the, the car journey, and my dad prays beforehand. And he prays for traffic conditions to be favourable around Junction 33 on the way through Cardiff, you know. Um, yeah. And 
it was exactly like that. And and at times, you know, um, a, a door wouldn't shut properly, and my mum would think it was Satan's work. And it uh, it, it it creates for an interesting sort of uh, way of thinking when you're growing up. It does, and it makes it makes life seem terribly epic as well, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? You know that rather than mundane. You know, mundane things. These are these 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 cosmic forces that are that are battling for you know the door mm. being opened or closed or mm. whatever. And your tattoo, you were you were saying in the book, Matt, about whenever you got tattoo of an anchor that your mum was asking if it was sort of satanic. Well, mum worried that everything. I, but well, for my mother, mm-hmm. everything that wasn't Christian was actually kind of in a way by definition satanic. So she thought that basically. You know, even even atheists and Catholics, and you know, they were all satanic. Um, it was all quite a menacing way of looking at the world. Um, yes, my tattoo, which which I don't think is satanic. I just think it's really bad. Um, but the the solution is to get lots of tattoos around it to distract attention. There's a tip for anyone who's got a bad tattoo: just get just get better tattoos. I can remember one time being on a holiday that was to do with the the church that I was connected to, and at one point the keys got lost of the sort of a it was sort of a outhouse that that people were that people were staying in, and the whole thing was that Satan had stolen the keys, um, that he was so agitated by these good folk doing wholesome things that he'd stolen these keys. And then they were found on top of a wall <laughs> where someone had been jumping over the wall, the keys had fallen out of the pocket. Satan had put them there. No? Satan, God had eliminated the keys. Oh, once God they had were... illuminated them, right. <laughs> so God had right, eliminated right. the keys once they were found. <laughs> and it makes, it makes the world seem exciting in some ways. Menacing, but also exciting, I think. But... Yeah, I think it was the menace and uh, the, the, the paranoia that my mum really thrived on more than the excitement. She didn't seem too excited about anything, but... Um, it, 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 I suppose it kind of gives the world a sense that things are meaningful. It's like, it's like conspiracy theories. You know, people who think that the world's being run by a group of kind of paedophiles operating out of Washington and all the rest of it. And yeah. They're abducting children. It's like, in a way, that's better than just thinking there's a load of big companies that are running rampant and no one really knows what's going on. And it, actually, it's all just a farce, you know. Boris Johnson hasn't got a clue how to control COVID. and The world's a mess. In a way, it's better to think that there's someone who actually knows what they're doing, even if they're malevolent, because then, you know, maybe we could defeat them. Um, so, yes, the, all of that... that way of thinking it gives a sense of order in the world and it makes world the world feel more kind of legible and understandable let's hear let's hear son of a preacher man by dusty inevitable, yeah. it's inevitable that we're going to play this billy ray was a preacher's son and when his daddy would visit he'd come Matt, one of the things I didn't ask you about was how the book actually came about. How did you decide, or when did you decide to write this, and just how did you go about getting it published? So I started writing it in 2017, 
And in a way, I had the perfect conditions for a writer because I went to this wonderful rehab where you get intensive help for six months. And then after that, they let you live for up to a few years in a kind of bedsit next to the rehab so you can carry on seeing your therapist and you can be around people who are still not using drugs. And... Um, I had all this time, I had all my expenses cared for, um, and I thought to myself, if you don't write a book now, you never, ever, ever will. Um, and at the time I thought I wanted to be a novelist, so I started off writing a scene about a man who goes to his friend's funeral on drugs, and I thought to myself, do you know what, this isn't a novel, like, let's just call this what it is, which is the truth. Um, and then I spent a couple of years, I, you know, I, I was busy. This was a side project. I was trying to um, get my life together. I, I started a relationship. I got a real job working for a psychotherapy charity. And I was just writing on the side. I was writing in the mornings before work. And then finally, after um, a couple of years, I had a few chapters that I could send to a, a publisher. So I did that. And then... After that, um, I signed a contract to finish writing the book. Um, so after starting with ideal conditions for a writer, I actually ended the book with probably the worst possible conditions for a writer because uh, I went through some terrible, um, some really difficult personal stuff. I lost my, my beloved brother who, who, who died... Um, very shortly after I signed the contract for the book, um, that actually led to me taking drugs again after four and a half years clean. So I kind of thought I had this triumphal story to tell and it turned out that I had a more complicated story to tell. But actually, I mean, for, my, for, for myself, it, it's been very difficult. For the book itself, I actually think that it's... Uh, you know, it, it, it's given me an opportunity to really do justice to the complexity of recovery and just of life, you know, because even the most successful recovery of anyone who's had a drug addiction, all they're going to do is um, find themselves liberated into the human condition, the ordinary human condition. And that can be quite complicated and tough sometimes. So, yeah, it, it ends on a note of ambiguity and complexity, but I'm actually happy with the way that it that it ends, and that comes from the difficult circumstances in which I was writing it. Can I just read the last the last line there, the one with the ending that keeps on going because it's made of nothing but a string of todays? Yeah, because, you know, that's just life, isn't it? I mean, all of our lives are a string of todays, uh, there's no, as I say elsewhere, that you know, there's no um, arrivals terminal. There's no closing credits in life. Until life's over, you never reach the promised land. You know, even though in this book I reach, I, I visit the literal promised land. I go to Israel at one point, and my parents thought they were heading for the promised land. They thought they were living for, they were he heading for heaven. You know, I just don't think life is like that on earth. And I think that we always have to deal with the ups and downs and the black and white and the the difficult things that come with being alive. Um, so that's what I was trying to point to there. 
Matt, it's been such a it's been such a pleasure to talk to you about this about the book today. It's been such a pleasure to listen to everything that you that you have to say. And as you were saying before, people have responded to it so so well. You know, people can see the quality of it and the significance and the importance of it. And I'm just sure that what Kevin Parr says is true, that it will absolutely be regarded as a as a classic. Would you like to pick a final song for us? Well, yeah, but just before I do, it's also such a pleasure to meet you, Wendy, because you're one of my writing heroes. And everyone listening to this should buy Dance Move, which is Wendy's new collection of brilliant (laughs) short stories, and uh, Sweet Home, her first one, which is equally as brilliant. So, yeah, what a thrill. Thank you. Uh, The song that I wanted to pick was uh, Salvation by an American singer called Langhorn Slim. And it's about looking for salvation, as it says, which has kind of been the whole project of my life. And in this song, he's talking about finding salvation in a relationship. But it's a sad song because he sings about having to walk away from this relationship. And in a way, in my life, I feel like I've had to try my very best, and I'm still trying to walk away from this idea that salvation's coming, you know? That there's one thing that's going to somehow save me and make my life real and perfect and beautiful. And this song kind of captures that. And it also just makes me think about uh, a a relationship with the wonderful person that I had um, while I was writing the book as well, so it's personal to me. Salvation. I've been searching low and high. I'm tired of.